I want to get into the message. We have been teaching. This is week 20. Can you guys believe this is week 20 of our Sermon on the Mount series? I still remember clearly conversations with some of our staff when I said I was going to teach you the Sermon on the Mount for the next 20, 21 weeks. And they were like, are you sure there's enough meat in there, enough to really teach on? I'm like, yeah, we could probably teach the rest of the year on this. But we're not. We've got two more weekends. We've got this weekend and then next weekend. Next weekend is going to be special. Next weekend is, is, the, is, is the finale of the series. But it's also, I think, going to be special. Number one, I won't be here. So it's special for that. But, but Pastor Craig is actually going to be teaching that message. And the reason is, I was originally going to teach that message. I was going to actually put it in as part of this one. But he feels like God gave him something very, very specific and pointed about, about how to wrap this series up um, and how Jesus wraps up his Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he and I have talked about it, we've prayed about it, and I think it's going to be amazing. So Gabe and I next weekend are going to be, we're going to be up in Snowmass doing Tough Mudder, okay? If any of you feel like joining us, you're welcome to just jump in and join us if you're feeling that. I'm not sure why we're doing that, but we are. But I want to just urge you, don't consider it a, well, we just won't go to church because pastor's not there. Pastor Craig is an amazing teacher, and he has got a word that I believe that God gave him to wrap up this, this message series. So you're going to want to be here. If you've missed any of them up to now and you want to go back and catch them up, we've got, we've got a podcast on Google Play and on iTunes. You can go back and catch those and just kind of catch, fill in the blanks of the ones that you missed. But where we are today... We are, again, second, second to last week. It's really the last real teaching that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not familiar with it, maybe you're visiting or haven't heard, is the single greatest collection of wisdom, divine wisdom, human wisdom, any kind of wisdom that really has ever been given in one particular message. Now, this is secular sources, uh, religious sources, they all pretty much agree that this teaching from Jesus is everything that you need with how to interact with each other, how to interact with, with our God, whether you believe in God or not, how to just to, how to interact with one another in a life-giving and a fruitful way is such wisdom. And so this week, Jesus wraps up the series. I wrap up the series. He wraps up his sermon. Now, it took us 20 weeks. Jesus wasn't there for 20 weeks. He was, he was there for an afternoon. But Matthew 7, 24 through 27. This is our scripture, and I'm going to come down here and read it when it's up there. Therefore, everyone who... Now, these are... I, I, I do this every time, but I want to set the stage. This is Jesus teaching to a collection of mostly disciples, mostly converts, but also people who have, from curiosity, come out from the countryside to see this prophet that's traveling around and teaching. And so they see this crowd gathering... They come out, they want to see what's going on. So Jesus is teaching to basically this random crowd. Many of them he knows, a lot of them he doesn't, and they've come out to hear Jesus teach. And so this is where, this is where he is. Now he's, he's taught through the Sermon on the Mount, and he's wrapping it up with this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, 
and it fell, and great was its fall. So this is what Jesus is saying right here, and there's a lot there that we're going to talk about here in just a second, but I want to ask a question. At its core, this is about faith. He's talking about building your house. Now, your house is your spiritual house. It's a parable, and parables are designed to paint a picture to get you to think, to get you to think about what he's trying to, to teach you. And so he's talking about your spiritual house, and he's talking about your faith at its very core. And so I want to ask you, later in the, in the message, if I can keep myself on time, which I'll try to, we're going to have some time for some testimonies. But I want you to think right now, just start thinking, all of you, whether you want to share your testimony or not, is there a time that you can think of in your life where your faith has been shaken? Where your faith has maybe started to erode, maybe been washed away by a couple storms that came your way, and that has weakened your faith, either to the point where it completely collapsed, or maybe it was shaken and it stood. Think about one of those times, maybe something that happened to you. But more importantly, think about this. How'd you get through it? What enabled you to get through it? Now, if you're, if you're one of those people where my, my faith was shaken and it collapsed, my faith completely collapsed, and I still haven't been able to rebuild that, that's good too, because God can work with that. But I want you to think about ways where you were able to either withstand the storm that came your way or rebuild that faith after it was damaged. So that's kind of the testimony. I'd like you to be thinking about that. And whether you share your testimony or not, think about this message in those terms. All right, so let's go back to the scripture right here. Now remember I talked about when you are reading scripture, when you're reading any verse, anything in the Bible, it's there for a reason and it's been put together in a very thoughtful, intentional way. And there are certain clues that we get when we're trying to study the word, certain things like when it starts out with the word therefore. Okay, so this teaching starts out with the word therefore and so what Jesus is essentially saying, if we just read that first couple sentences. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. If we just stop right there, he's saying all the things that I've taught you up until now, everything that you've heard me say in this Sermon on the Mount, with those things in mind, therefore, okay, so we have to frame this, what he's saying right now, in context of what he's been teaching us. And if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll just do a quick recap, the Sermon on the Mount starts out with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are just a series of blessings saying, these are the character traits that my Father wants you to have. These are the character traits that my followers, my disciples should begin to exhibit. This is, this is who you should strive to be. And then he says, and then here are the blessings of that. If you have these character traits, my Father will bless you in this way. That's the Beatitudes. Then he goes into a long series of teaching where he says, practically, this is how to live your life. This is how you should feel about anger. This is how you should feel towards your neighbor. This is how you should live. And he goes on and on to do that. Then towards the end, if you remember the last few weeks, he says, okay, I know this is hard. 
I know all these things sound difficult, and how are you possibly going to do them? Because if you remember, he says, it's not enough to just do the things. You have to do them with the right heart. And you have to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because the Pharisees did the things that it says in the word, but they didn't do them with the right heart. And he calls them hypocrites over and over again. So he's saying, don't be like them. Do it with the right heart. So it seems very, very hard. We like instruction manuals. I'll turn to page three that tells me how to do this thing. How do I do it with the right heart if my heart's not there? So Jesus says, ask, just ask and seek wisdom and knock and search. And we will give you, we meaning he and and the, the Holy Spirit, his heavenly father will give you everything that you need to navigate life. And so he says that. And then he cautions us and says, be careful where you get your information. That's not enough to just read the word, and it's not enough to just pray, but there are people out there who are going to try and deceive you with false teaching, with false prophecy, and they'll do it for their own gain in some cases. So he's given us all these cautions, and then he comes to this place, and he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, meaning take all the teaching that's come up to this point and say, You need to act on them. It's not enough to know. So Jesus tells us how we live, how we should live, what the rewards are, and then says, now that you know, go do it. This is what he's saying. And he's comparing somebody who hears the words and doesn't live them to somebody who hears the words, takes them to heart, and makes that their life. It's not a lifestyle. It's not something that we just do on the weekends. It should be who we are to our core, taking these words of mine. That's what Jesus is talking about. So if we go back to, word, to, to uh, verse 24, which is the first one, therefore, everyone who hears these words, he's referring essentially to all of the religious hypocrites that were around in that day. Okay, whether it was the false prophets and teachers who were traveling around the Galilee teaching at that time, And there were numerous of them. Or he could be talking about the Pharisees or about the Sadducees who basically made it their life's mission to gain personally from teaching the word. But they taught the law specifically. They did not teach the heart. And Jesus calls them hypocrites for doing the same thing. The important part of that phrase is and acts on them. And acts on them. It is never enough to know what you should do if you don't do it. How many people in this world, and we see news reports all the time where people see something happen, they know what they should do, but they turn their back on it. They turn their back and walk away. Why do they do that? We see news reports of people who watch others get mugged, murdered in some cases. We watch people who see people steal. And at an even more basic level, how many times have you been in, in your workplace and you see a coworker um, cheat the system by having someone else punch them out? I'm leaving now. Punch me out in two hours when it's time. That's stealing. Stealing office supplies. Some of these things seem very small things. And we don't do anything about it. In many cases, we don't do anything about it. We don't say anything and we don't do anything. Why is that? 
I think in a lot of cases, it's because the enemy immediately comes flooding in and says, don't stand up for what you know is right because you're going to be persecuted for it. At the very least, you're going to lose a friend or you might risk losing a friend. You might lose your job. You might completely be ostracized from everyone that you know if you stand up for what you believe is right. But Jesus not only does not try to soften that and say, don't worry about it, everything will be okay. He says, no, that's going to happen. That will happen to you. If you live the way that I have commanded, you will be persecuted. You will be looked at as different. He never promises us that it's going to be otherwise. But that phrase right there, and acts on them, is actually echoed in another section of Scripture, James 1.22. James 1.22 happens to be in our mission statement, which says, therefore, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's what we want to do as a church. That's what we want to do as a body. We want to not only know the word and hear the word, but we want to go out and do what it says. And that means not just on Sunday afternoons, you leave here and you're feeling good, and so you're nice to the first person you come across at the gas station. That means live it. Live it every single day. That's what it means. The rest of that verse may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. This is one of those instances where Jesus is painting a picture. He's kind of illustrating to the crowd who would have understood what he was getting to here in this analogy. Again, remember, it's a parable, and so he's drawing a picture for people to start thinking about. And when he's talking about the wise man who built his house on the rock, and then he continues to talk about the floods and the winds and the house that wasn't built the right way, and it blew away. Now, Jesus is talking about much more than building codes, okay? But in this instance, the picture that he's trying to paint here is one of something that happened in the cycle of life. Every single year in the whole Galilee region, the streams and the rivers, the Jordan specifically, would overflow, would overflow their banks. Now, there's, today, there's flood control, but back then, the banks would overflow by miles, there would be huge plains, a half a mile to a mile, where the river had overflowed and had, had flooded that whole region. But one thing that would happen at, at that time, it would bring in soft soil. Soft soil, sand, fertile soil, rock, small rocks that you could dig in. That's a very rocky region that's hard to dig in. But it would basically make this whole area around the rivers and streams, it would make it very fertile for quite a ways out. And then summer would come. And again, this is what he's referring to here. Summer would come. When summer comes, the rivers recede. They leave their deposits of fertile soil, and the rivers dry up to just a single, normal, controllable-looking river, right? The problem is, visitors would come into that region. They would move into that region, and they would look around, and they would say, okay, I've got a beautiful river right here, I've got wonderful soil and a flat ground. It's got this loose soil that I can easily dig in, not like the countryside. I'm going to build my house right here. Water's close. I've got everything I need. It's beautiful. They would do that, and they would build their house right there in that spot. Easy digging, and it's easy to build, and it looked very, very attractive. In fact, you can almost hear 
those people who move into the region and don't know any better, mocking those who already live there, who have gone to all the trouble to haul rocks up a half a mile, so they're on high ground, a half a mile to a mile away from the river. You could almost hear the mocking going that way, where they're saying, why, why aren't you so smart that you can build your house down here like I did? The problem is then, in the spring, the streams flow, and everything floods again. So the picture he's painting is something that they would have seen in a yearly cycle time and time again. Anything that was built on that loose soil, fertile-looking, inviting-looking, and certainly easy to dig in, but anything that was built there would get hit when the floodwaters came again. And they came like clockwork every year. And they would flood the house. This is what Jesus is talking about. The people of the land, though, would know better. They would know better. And isn't that something that happens to us as Christians on a regular basis? The world will tell you, why do you do things the hard way? Why do you not join in with the flow? Why do you even worry about holding on to these values that do nothing but cause trouble and strife and division? That's what they'll tell you. Why are you so narrow-minded? But we know because we have a higher source and we understand the reason why we do the things we do have much more than at that moment it's easier to build my house here. For eternity, it's better to build my house there. So when we talk about the rock, you know, he's talking about builds his house on the rock. That meaning of the rock is debated. There are even scholars talk about what the rock really could be. It could be, here's like an example of, oh, wait. That's the wrong, take that, take that down. That's the wrong slide. That is the rock, a rock, not the rock. Here's what some people, though, they say that the rock that Jesus is referring to here is just wisdom. It's wisdom. And that may make sense. Some say it could be repentance. Some say it could be faith in God. It could be any of these things, and this, it's debatable. But I think whenever you run into a place like that, whether, whether it's a minor thing, like what does that word mean, or whether it's an idea, when you see it debated, that means that scholars, well-meaning scholars can dig into that, and they can come up with different conclusions. It happens all the time. When that happens to me, what I do is I look to Scripture. I look to Scripture, and I try to use Scripture to figure out what other Scripture says. So I found another Scripture in Matthew that this is Jesus teaching, and he's talking about the rock or a rock or a foundation in another setting. And here it is. Now, to set the tone for this, Jesus is walking around with his disciples. He's walking around the Galilee, walking around all of Judea. He's been, he's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing people. He's been feeding the thousands with just a couple loaves and fishes. He's been doing all these things, and his disciples have been walking around with him, witnessing these things. Okay, now he comes to a place. And this is where we are. This is out of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, 
quick seg- uh, side note right here. Caesarea Philippi is one of the places that we'll actually visit when we go to Israel next year. And I know I've teased it a couple times, and I'm still kind of teasing it. But in September of next year, we are laying the groundwork and the plans right now for a DCC-only trip to Israel. It's going to be exciting. I'll tell you more about that later. But we are going to go. And Caesarea Philippi is one of the places that you will stand in and you will see. Anyway, came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There are a lot of prophets. You could have been any of them. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, so he knows who people were saying. He wants to know who they say. His disciples, his closest confidants. Who do they say he is? And immediately Simon Peter answers, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a good answer. I could see the other disciples going, good answer, good answer. I was going to say that. I I just didn't. You beat me to it. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Simon Barjona and Peter, same guy. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So let me tell you a couple things about names. Some of you have heard this, some of you haven't. In in Hebrew and in much of the world, really, names have meaning, okay? Beyond a lot of people now in, in our country and all over the world, they have a name and they have no idea what that name means. But then specifically, names were were given to somebody to reflect their character, either the character of who they were going to become prophetically or who they were now. And so you see a lot of times, like in, in uh, in the instance of Paul, he was Saul, that was his given name, and his name was changed to Paul to reflect his new character. In this case, let's go back one, Simon Peter, Simon Bar Jonah, same same person there, Bar Jonah. Anytime you see Bar slash or Bar hyphen, it means son of. So this is Simon, son of Jonah. Okay, so that's that's what Jesus is calling him. That's his given name. But he later then, in this very sentence here, changes his name and he says, "You are Peter." Now, one of the things that people say that the rock can be is Peter himself. In fact, the Catholic Church, Peter is their founder. St. Peter is the one who founded essentially the Catholic Church. He was their first leader. And they say to this day, they contend, and again, they, they study it out, and this is their belief, nothing right about it, but it's not what my study shows, and I'll share that with you here. But they consider him the beginning of the Catholic Church because they say that this is the moment where Jesus commissions Peter as being the rock that the church is founded on. So that's where they get that. So let's go to the next, the the final part of that. I say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church on that. What is he building his church on? Is he building his church on top of Peter literally? No. 
So in order to understand that, again, I told you that names have more meaning besides just the name. What does Peter mean? Jesus looks at him and he says, because of what you just said to me, I'm renaming you Peter. Does anybody know what Peter means in in Hebrew? Stone. More specifically, pebble, small stone. Means really small pebble. So Jesus is saying, because of your faith and because you spoke up and with absolute, undying, unhesitating faith said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm going to change your name to Small Pebble. Does that sound like I'm going to build my whole entire church on this small pebble? No. But it is important to understand because what it means is that Peter is just one small part. But his undying faith and his knowledge of who Jesus as Lord is upon many small pebbles with that same faith and that some that same undying unflagging knowledge of who Christ is as the Messiah that is what the foundation of the church will be built on that's what Jesus is teaching here he's not taking peter and elevating him above all the other apostles or disciples or anybody he's not saying you are the greatest among all these he's saying you are great because you're small You're great because you're one of many. And upon the multitudes who have that same faith that you do, that's where I'm going to build my church. That's where he's going with that. No one besides Jesus can pretend to be the foundation of the church. It says, the word says Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the very foundation of the church. And it is that unfailing faith that he builds his church on. And we are that. When it says, I will build my church, what is his church? That word church translates as ecclesia, which is a gathering. You are the church. You are the church, and it's those small pebbles that you are. You are a small pebble in the big church with big faith. And that is what Jesus can work with. And that's what he's teaching right here. He's saying, I don't need one or two people with fantastic faith who go around preaching to others who don't listen. I need a church of people who understand where their faith belongs and who understand the true word of the Father and his heart for you. That's what I need, and I need many of them. So it's not up to just one person to go out and do amazing things. Jesus himself said, it's better that I go because you'll do greater things than these when we come together as a body and form that foundation of faith. When we do that, God does amazing things through us. And that's what Jesus is saying he's going to build his church on. So let's go back to scripture, verses 25 to 27. He's essentially saying, in life, there will be storms. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. We talked about that already. We get the picture that he's painting. But what he's saying is, without fail, there will be storms. 
There are going to be storms. And it's easy to be a disciple of Christ when times are good. When your job is flourishing, when your relationships are good, when everybody in the family is healthy, when you're sending kids off to college and things are good, it is so much easier to be a disciple of Christ, is it not? It is. But what about when a storm hits? What about when something that you have put so much faith and energy into, what do we do when that fails? What do we do when we lose our job for no particular reason? What do we do when somebody gets sick? What do we do when we lose a loved one despite our heartfelt prayers? What do we do when we lose marriages, relationships, these things that we pray to in expectancy that God is going to take care of them for us, but we lose them anyway? These things can shake your faith. But what do we do? What's our response? When that faith is shaken, what is our response? Does your foundation of faith just wash away in the first big storm? It could be a catastrophic thing that happens. I've lost a loved one. Okay, that's catastrophic, and that can shake your faith to the core. But it could be slow erosion over time. Slow disappointments that sometimes we don't even realize are happening along the way. Somebody from the church doesn't treat us right. We go to another church, they don't treat us right either, and more than that, uh, somebody does something outwardly bad to me. Then I go home and I say, oh, I don't need church anymore, I'm just gonna pray myself and read the word, and then something bad happens to you, and all of a sudden, all these little things just wash away at our foundation. And before you know it, if your foundation is not built on the rock, you've got nothing left. And then all it takes is one more storm and your foundation is gone. And you lose your faith. Now I'm not pointing at anybody who maybe has had that process happen and they're sitting here right now going, yeah, I'm struggling with my faith too. I know who Jesus is, but I've never seen him do anything for me. There are people who think that every day and I'm not saying that that's a bad place to be because we have a Savior who won't leave you there. He is pursuing you with truth every moment of every day. And sometimes it's messages like this. Sometimes it's him speaking to you directly through prayer. And he's trying to rebuild that foundation. But we need to build it in the right way. We need to build it the right way. Otherwise, the very last word there, end great, was its fall. Because it'll be just like that house when it washes away. Have you ever seen it just washes away and the foundation gets smaller and smaller and smaller and it's just teetering on like, how can it even still be there? And it just takes a nudge and off it goes. Great is its fall. And when you fall from that place, you fall hard and it can be hard to get back in. So let me give you a test for your foundation. If you're like, well, I don't, I'm not sure where my foundation stands right now. I have doubts sometimes. Doubts are fine. But where's my foundation? I want to give you a little test. Are you able, ask yourself this question, are you able to be the salt and the light and reach out in love to help someone else when you're in the midst of your own trial? Are you? Think about the worst thing that you went through recently, whatever that thing is, a job or health or whatever it is. Could have been breakfast this morning. Whatever the worst thing you recently went through. In the midst of that, 
Were you able to think about ministering to somebody else? Sharing the love of Christ with somebody else, loving on them, and being able to set your personal trials and what you're going through aside. Were you able to do that? If you are, I would suggest that your foundation is in great shape. We've all heard stories about people who are in the hospital, right? People who are in the hospital, they've got cancer, they've got some terminal disease, and they're in getting chemo or whatever it is, and they are sharing Jesus with the people who come in to their room, right? Most of us have heard some version of a story like that. I always hear those, and I go, I hope that would be me. I hope in that situation I would be able to look outside of myself and do that. And I think that mostly not because, hey, I want to I wanna be like them because that's pretty cool. I want to be like Jesus. What did Jesus do? We talked about, um, we talked about the Via Dolorosa, the, way, the sorrowful way where Jesus had to carry his cross on the way to being crucified. And on that trip, he's being beaten and he's carrying that cross and he stops to minister to somebody along the way. I think he could have been forgiven for being a little bit self-absorbed at that moment, right? But he wasn't. He was looking for people who needed help. And he ministered to them. Then, moments later, he's nailed to the cross, literally in the middle of being crucified, and he looks down, and he's ministering to people. He's pouring out his heart, and he sets aside what's happening to him at the moment because he knows that it's not up to him it's up to his Father in heaven, and he has that kind of unfaith, unshakable faith that we should be looking for, that supernatural faith. Now, Jesus was the closest to the Father that anyone has ever been on earth. However, we have the Holy Spirit, which gives us that same access, that same communion with the Father, that very same ability to hear from the Father that Jesus had. We have that. So we don't have an excuse. We can't say, well, I'm not Jesus, so I can't do this. No, you're not Jesus, but that's why you need Jesus. And he will give you what you need in that situation. Being a follower of Christ is no guarantee that things aren't going to come your way, that storms won't come your way, that the devil himself won't attack you. In fact, they're a guarantee that those things will happen. You know, the original apostles, the 12 original apostles, Every single one of them was persecuted for being a follower of Christ. Eleven of the twelve were martyred for it. They were hung. They were stabbed. They were beaten with stones. The one that eventually died of natural causes was John, but it wasn't because somebody didn't try. He had boiling oil poured on him. He just survived it. So being a follower of Christ and knowing Jesus intimately is certainly no get-out-of-jail ticket that things aren't going to come your way. But what they are is they're an assurance. They're an assurance that in the midst of a storm, if your faith is built on solid rock, then you will be able to live the way that Jesus wants you to live and what he wants you to do. His number one commandment is to love the Lord your God and love one another. So can you love one another in the middle of your biggest trial? The biggest thing that you'll ever go through in your life, whether you've already gone through it or that thing is yet to come, will you be able to share the love of Christ with others while you're going through that? 
That's the test of your foundation. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When storms come your way, will you be able to do that? Jesus never promises us it's going to be easy. And so I want to take a minute. I was able to to finish fairly on time. I want to offer the chance for anybody to share some, some encouraging testimony on a time when maybe your faith was shaken, but you were able to get through it and how you got through it. Does anybody have a testimony they'd like to share? Got one over here. Perfect. Jeannie? Well, a few years ago, excuse me, um, still pretty fresh in my mind when, I, when you talk about it, uh, my kidneys started to fail. I only had one. I was born with just one. And my kidneys started to fail, and I knew it was happening. But I became so in denial that I tried to ignore it. And one day, um, for weeks and weeks, a long time, uh, all I could do, I couldn't hardly eat. I would just throw up water. And I knew I had to go and get it taken care of. And so I went into the doctor's office, and they said, um, <laughs> you're not going home. Um, they didn't even have a chance to take me into the emergency room. They took me in a wheelchair and up the elevator and put me in a bed. My feet were up. My head was down. And they put in a, a tube here in What was the thing that got me was Midas was standing for two new kidneys to be put in. We had been standing this whole time, probably two years, honey. And we knew God was going to do it. We knew he was going to do it, and there was no question in our mind. Well, here I was in this bed, and they, in 15 minutes, they had a dialysis machine on my arm, and I knew I was in trouble. So I had to make a decision. I had to say, okay, God, I'm going to get so mad, or I'm going to turn to you. The Lord sent three friends one night, that night, about 8 o'clock, way past the time of visitors, And um, they brought me a big um, bouquet of roses. And they said, Jeannie, we're here for you. And I said, yes, I wanted my kidneys. So they prayed for me, and they stayed till, I I think, 8 o'clock. I mean, 10 o'clock. It was way past. And the nurse came in, and I said, I'm very sorry. They stayed so long. She said, no, you needed it. I knew you needed it. So I ended up. Um, with, I got scars where they put in everything. They took it from here and they put shunts in here. And I had a decision to make. While I sat, when they got everything in, they put me in a dialysis unit. And I went every week, three times a week. By the time we got home from start to end, it was like five hours. So my whole life changed. I was very independent. California, I went wherever I wanted to go. My kids were grown away from home. And here we are waiting for our kidneys. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, 
Oh, first of all, I tell you that the lady who was praying intercessor for me, she called me one day and she says, Ginny, the Lord just spoke to me and I have to call and tell you. I said, what does he say? He said, Get, let me out of the box. Please let me out of the box. I'm doing something else. And so I began then to wait for a kidney. But I went there and the Lord spoke to me personally in that hospital room that night. <laughs> and he said, if you will go and you will minister to the people around you, I will take care of you. You will, you will be taken care of. And so I did. I didn't tell the nurses. I, and they began to bring people. They would set somebody aside in the dialysis chair beside me. And uh, one lady was a, a famous chef in Tulsa. And uh, something tragic happened to her. They brought her back to life, literally. And they set her beside me. And uh, we got to be very good friends. But for eight and a half years, I sat on that Dallas machine. And sometimes it wasn't easy. Sometimes my arms hurt. Sometimes I was very tired. I couldn't hardly move. But I kept going. And one day I said, Lord, I think it's about over because I'm feeling like either death or you're going to take me or I'm, I'm going to get my transplant. And uh, one night uh, the phone rang and uh, it was uh, Baylor Hospital in Dallas. And they said, we have a kidney for you. Could you get on the way and be here by 6 o'clock in the morning? And I said, I don't know. And the nurse hung up. And I said, what did you just say? And I said, I don't know. I, I, such a fear went through me. And so I dialed her back. And she said, yes, just get on the road. And so uh, we didn't know anybody in Dallas. So it was just Minus and I. And uh, as we went there, it was just amazing. It was like God put me in a bubble. I just felt his presence with me. And I got a man's kidney from uh, Tennessee. And it has been the best kidney. I have had absolutely no problem, nothing with that kidney. And um, Midas said to me one day, he said, you know, I didn't pray a lot while I was driving. I said, well, thank the Lord you were driving at night from Tulsa to, to Dallas. And he said, but the Lord spoke to him and said, all I ask you to do is to show up. That's all I ask you to do. And so I got this kidney, and they told me when I moved here that it probably, uh, because it was from a cadaver, it wasn't alive, and it had been on ice for a long time, and they didn't know whether it would work. And um, it's 17 years old, Christmas Eve, and they told me when I came here it would probably last 12. So I know God will take us through. You have to make a decision. You just have to say, Lord, I hang on you with everything I have. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you, Jean. And that concludes our service for today. Yeah.
You know, I was going to, I was actually going to uh, ask for a few testimonies, but what could possibly be more beautiful than that? And what a great illustration of faith, a firm foundation, a bedrock of faith, not in the world, not in their bank account, not in anything they could do, or not even in the doctors, but a firm foundation in faith that God would take care of this. And then coupled with her obedience of saying, if you just do these things, I'll take care of you. That's what this is. That's what the firm foundation of faith, that's what bedrock is. It is a faith in God, unshakable, a knowledge of the truth, a knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ put into action. That's a foundation. And so I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, the time to make sure your foundation of faith is not when you're in the middle of a trial. Jeannie didn't wait until her kidney failed to say, okay, I better learn about who Jesus is and try and, try and figure out what's going on now and tomorrow and the next day. When you're in the middle of a trial, when you're coming out of a trial, before you've gone into one, that's the time to make sure your foundation of faith is solid and it's where it belongs. And you can only do that through Jesus, a knowledge of who he is. And so Jesus invites you to know him. If you don't know him, it's very simple to know who he is. You, for the most part, just have to stop, quit trying to get away. Stop trying to get away, and he will come to you. Open your heart to him. But the second thing is ask the Lord. So as we go into our response time, worship team, you guys can start coming on up. As we go into our response time, I want to ask you, where's your foundation? Because it's not for me to judge. It's not for someone else to judge. A lot of times we can't even really judge. But God can. And he's the only one that can. So as we go into this response time, we're going to serve communion. We'll have, juice, or we'll have wine and bread up here. And then at the crosses, we've got juice and bread and the crackers. You can serve yourself there. But let's take this first song as we do, and let's respond to what the Lord puts on our heart. But here's the way I would like to direct your prayers. Ask the Lord to show you a place where your foundation may need some shoring up. Maybe some doubts, some attacks that have come your way that have eaten away at that foundation, and it needs to be rebuilt. Ask him where those places are, and then the next best question to ask is, Lord, how do I do that? Because we make some ways. Coming up September 18th, I've got a class called Bedrock that I'm going to do eight weeks, starting Tuesday, September 18th. It'll be right here in the evenings. And I'm, my goal in that, my heart, is to teach you how to study the Word yourself. Because listening to me, great. Listening to podcasts, all those things are wonderful. But there's nothing that beats studying the Word of God for yourself and letting it speak directly to your heart. So I want to be able to teach you that. I'll teach you about Bible translations. I'll teach you about how to do exegetical studies. Uh, I'll teach you about what faith is, who's Jesus, how do we even know that the Bible's real. We'll talk about all those things. So I'll tell you more about it later. But there are so many ways. But again, those are just man-made ways. The best way is for you to seek the Lord's heart. And that's what I would just pray that we do now. So would you just join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for your unfailing, 
undying, unshakable love for us. There's nothing that, come, that can come at us, God, that you can't stand against. Lord, it's only through our doubts. It's only through our doubts that our foundation is ever shakable at all. And so, Lord, I just ask right now that as we sit here, you show us those places where our foundation might need a little shoring up. Lord, and then we just invite you to flood in and show us what you want us to know. Because, God, we want to be strong and unshakable. And in the midst of that storm, we want to be able to reach out to others and share your love. Share the love of the Father with them. And through that, Lord, we want to glorify you at all times in everything we do. So, Father, we just lift this time up to you, and we just ask that you speak to our hearts. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship team will release you after the first song, and then you can start moving around to do communion. Thanks.
invite you to stand and like Bob said we have the crosses on either sides with the gluten free crackers or regular crackers and juice or they'll be up on the side here serving wine and, and the bread for we trust in our God Through his unfailing love, we will not be shaken. We will not be shaken. We will not be shaken. For we trust in our God, and through his unfailing.
Shaking. We will not be shaken. 